1: W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You may know to Bolu from various creative roles. As a panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, his stand-up specials on Netflix, or... From his 2017 documentary, The Problem with Apu, which inspired a global conversation about race and representation in the entertainment industry. Hurry is performing in Atlanta again at Dad's Garage on Wednesday, November 16th. Before he hits the stage, he joins me now via Zoom. Hurry, welcome back to City Lights.
0: Thank you, Lois. It's so good to hear your voice. It's been a very long time.
1: Too long. And I guess that begs the question, what have you been doing in the past three years? Or more specifically, after live performance came to a screeching halt? with the pandemic.
0: It's hard to say that the pandemic was well timed, but I will say during that period me and my partner had a baby.
1: Oh, so and- tough.
0: Thank you. And you know, it, it's it's a weird thing when you're surrounded by so much sadness and death, loss and you're bringing, you know, life into that. It is a very strange uh, feeling and you know, we got so much love from people which I think generally happens when you have a child, but I felt even more so just because there was so much sadness and bad news every single day. And we were, you know, I say we were pregnant, but she was pregnant. Uh, I was there uh, during, um, you know, we were in New York city, March, 2020. So we were in the middle of it. So, you know, it, uh, it was a, a kind of an incredibly hard experience. But we have this wonderful human being. And, you know, I, since I wasn't traveling, I got to spend basically every day of my child's life with him for that first year.
1: Oh, he was born in March?
0: He was born in August oh. of 2020. So we were, pre- uh, we, I keep saying we, as if I really had, uh, I had a role. You a, did. A limited role, but, you know, Joss was pregnant during the heart of it. And so it's hard, again, it's hard to say anything positive about the pandemic, but I did experience what I believe they call in other countries, they refer to as paternity leave. Where I get to spend every day for that first year with my child, and got to be part of you know that experience, and I already knew that we should have paternity leave and maternity leave in this country, but that experience of spending all the time, the idea that I wouldn't have been able to, or a parent in general wouldn't have been able to because of work in this country is it, it's even more upsetting now that I experience what it's like to actually have that.
1: Oh. And not only is that marvelous for you and your family, but it also reveals your origins as a political activist. Uh, There are people who may not know that uh, you have a master's in human rights studies from the London School of Economics.
0: Yeah, <laughs> a lot of money was spent, Lois, before I agreed to a career that was so unstable.
1: Well, but it, it you know, that activism, being an immigrant rights organizer, it certainly informs your work. Yeah. In your stand up, you never shy away from discussing race or stereotyping. I marvel at how you craft stories and arrive at punchlines that are hilarious but poignant and really hard-hitting at the same time, is it as fluid a process as it seems in your work? Um,
0: ah, is it, is, that's a really good question. No, (laughs) it's, you know, you know, that's not always true. Sometimes you get super lucky and you get lightning in a bottle and you say something on stage and the words come out and they pour out and it's perfect. And a few tweaks here and there, but you've somehow either improvised or come, uh, have come up with something that doesn't need a lot of work. It's, it is what it is and it's perfect. And it's a little bit of genius that somehow came out of your mouth most times it's a thought that leads to other thoughts, that leads to more writing, that leads to going on stage and repeatedly bombing until you figure out the right combination of ideas, the right combination of words, the right combination of sentences, until you have something that, that works on stage. So I've had some weird experiences in Portland. Last time I was there, I was hanging out with a friend. He introduced me to his friend. Introductions are always weird for me because my name is Hurry. That's constantly mispronounced. Hurry, Harry, right? Different ways to screw it up. And it leads to these awkward conversations. So this guy asked me what my name was, and I told him my name is Hurry. Hurry? No, it's Hurry. Harry? I'm like, look, I don't wanna play this game right now, okay? Just uh (laughs) make eye contact, say something close, I'll know you're talking to me. And and he got really upset about this. No, I want to get your name right, okay? It's important that I get your name right. Because people get my name wrong all the time, and I'm sick of it. I'm like, all right, man, what's your name? My name is Dave. (laughs) Wait, did you just say your name was Dave? No, not Dave. My name is Dave. And so I hugged him. (laughs) I did. Here, here was a man who could relate to my secret pain. And after our embrace, I asked him, friend, why did your parents name you Dave? And he said, well, they didn't. They named me Dave, but last year I legally changed it to Dave. It's, uh... It's, a, it's spelled D-E-Y-F. No. That is not my problem. That is a much different problem. That is a much larger problem. That is clearly a Portland, Oregon-based problem. Don't pretend! I, you know, I think there are comics who... They just have that natural gift. Everything that comes out of their mouth sounds perfect, like it's a joke. And I have moments like that. But for the most part, you know, I pride myself on putting the work in and trying to find new and different ways to be funny, to come up with a new structure for a punchline, to try to keep the audience off guard. So I wish it was that fluid, but it's a lot of stop and start. And sometimes, you know, I go through, I don't throw anything away. I have every notebook pretty much that I've written in since I was 17 years old. And every now and then I'll go through old books from a decade ago. And I find a thought that I wasn't ready to really delve into at that age. It was like a thought, but I didn't have enough life experience. And now I'll, I'll dig into it now. And I I get somewhere that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. So, I mean, that's the, the wonderful thing about comedy is that it looks really fluid, but it's actually like for most of us like a really painstaking process and a great deal of thought and at least for me I never throw anything away. I feel like if I thought of something there must have been some validity to it. If I if I felt so strongly at some point, let's dig in and see what what else is
1: there. That's fantastic. And how wise of you to keep those journals to keep those thoughts. So, look, it's Part of your art, making it sound fluid and simple, but of course it takes arduous planning and and crafting of the stories. I've got to say, I want to thank you for turning one of my rants, although you could not possibly have known, you turned one of my rants into... A fabulous stand-up routine. Why does white chocolate exist? (laughs) But you, hurry, of course, turned it into something pointing Mm. out the inherent racism. I simply thought chocolate is perfect. You know, (laughs) the racial part hadn't occurred to me, but is that my white? Privilege.
0: It's also my constant search for a joke and seeing something also for the purpose of laughter. I think that's, I think most people don't function with the idea of let me have a conversation or a thought that I reshare over and over again so I'm sure at some point a thought has slipped into your mind that could have been a really funny joke but you let it go because you're a human being who <laughs> doesn't dwell on the same handful of thoughts until they're they're properly shared to a wide audience you know I love that that ch- the joke you're referring to is is one of the first like I I think it's probably still my my favorite joke and it's hard to say cuz I've written so many and and I wrote that one so many years ago but it's this idea that you know why did we need to make you know white chocolate chocolate's
1: perfect it's fraudulent
0: it's fraud it's not, it's, not it's, it's cocoa butter it's not even really chocolate it's, it's i know cocoa butter extract which i don't make as part of the joke but it's another point to be, be made but it's the idea of people thinking you know do you love the taste of chocolate but can't stand looking at it <laughs> well then try some white chocolate so let me talk about something perhaps we can all relate to Chocolate, yeah, yeah, we all know or like chocolate, yes? Chocolate. Chocolate is great, I love chocolate. Here's why I love chocolate so much. You see, in this country, a person is assumed to be white unless otherwise specified. That's why I like chocolate. Because when you first think of chocolate, you think of something brown. And if you think of white chocolate first, well, then you're a racist. Honestly. Come on. Who's thinking of chocolate in that situation exactly? And here's the bigger question. Why did we need white chocolate to begin with? All right, what was wrong with chocolate? It's chocolate, it's great. Why did we need to make white chocolate? Do you love the taste of chocolate, but can't stand looking at it? We'll try some white chocolate, huh? <laughs> and, and the punchline being from the people that brought you white Jesus, which has has done well and, and has also not done well, depending on who's in the room. I will share oh, that much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you, and I would
1: think also the region.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, you'll be surprised that there are times where you go to a city and people love it, either because... You know, it's it's a group of people who've been dying to hear the kinds of things I have to say. Or sometimes, it's funny, when you go to a town where you don't get that much live entertainment, even if the audience doesn't necessarily agree with you on a lot of things, they're just happy you're there. Mm-hmm. Like, they will enjoy their night because somebody came here and is talking to us. <laughs> so, you know, I, I also realize that there's a power in being an entertainer just that I wouldn't have gotten if I was just a a human being rambling about things.
1: That's the antidote to your dad earlier on asking for a head count of how many people (laughs) showed up to (laughs) hear you, isn't it?
0: It's like, Dad, you don't understand. It's not about the number of people. It's the impact I'm making and the quality of the laugh is what I say when I want to feel better about 20 people in a 300 seat auditorium, which luckily has not happened as much as it used to. Um, But No, I would think not. But I will say, you know, it has been interesting, you know, since it's hard to say the pandemic ended, but, you know, since we've started performing again and and resumed some of our, our previous life's activities, it is interesting to see how ticket sales work, at least for me now, because... You know, historically, I've generally sold a lot of tickets ahead of time. People who are excited to see me finally come to their town or come back after a while. And, you know, it hasn't been that many pre-sales of late, which I I find kind of strange. And I get worried, like, have I lost it? Have people lost interest? And then I get to the show and it's packed. And apparently, people don't buy their tickets until the last minute now, because what if they get sick? You know, what if something changes? What if I get sick? And it's kind of interesting to see that as well as, you know, if there is any type of audience that would either wear a mask or be extra cautious at a show, it would be my crowd, which unfortunately (laughs) for the comics who are anti-mask, anti-vaccine, their shows sell out immediately because nobody cares about anything like no one's worried about the consequences. So it's easy to buy that ticket. My fans being thoughtful, cautious human beings tends to work in my disadvantage in this particular scenario, because it means that there's always a risk that, you know, people have to back out at the last second. But, you know, there's worse problems in the world. And I do I do not mind people wearing masks in the audience. I, it just means that you want to have a good time and not feel guilty about it.
1: And you can still hear laughter through masks. You can, which worried
0: me and would have worked as a wonderful excuse if shows didn't go well, but uh, <laughs> no, it, it you can. And, you know, you lose a little bit of the smiling and all the little things, but I can still hear the laughter. I know people are happy. And if they're not leaving their seats, that's probably a good sign.
1: I don't think you need to worry about that. I'm still back on white chocolate and it's <laughs> fraudulent. But part of what really landed as a shock for me is, I guess, because my love for chocolate goes back to infancy. I always associated the color of it with something so special and good. And it was shocking, eye-opening to think, whoa, are there people for whom the color brown immediately counters a horrible reaction.
0: Homeland Security would be one group of people, I think that the color brown would probably bring up a negative <laughs> reaction if history has shown us anything. I mean, what I love about that joke, I mean, part of it is really, I love the fact chocolate is brown and is the first thing people think of. When they think of chocolate, they think of something that is brown and is the positive thing. And in America, when you see you know the quote unquote average American being discussed, no one is thinking of me. No one is thinking of an Indian American. No one is thinking of a person of color. Most times, they're thinking of a, you know a white person. And what does that white person think and a white person's experience? And the default American, despite it, the great diversity of this country, ends up being white. And that's why chocolate, in part, is something I love so much because <laughs> you can't help but think of something positive and brown. You then know what I mean? That is out. a wonderful thing.
1: And cardiologists tell us now it's good for us. Oh, yes. Though, uh, isn't it dark chocolate they say is good for us? Yeah, but other than white, which as we know is fraudulent, I never met it it a fraudulent. chocolate I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> so there. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with comedian Hurry Kondabolu. He'll perform at Dad's Garage this Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. Hollywood and the entertainment industry at large have a long, ugly history with stereotyping. It's been five years since you created the documentary The Problem with Apu about a character on the animated comedy show The Simpsons. For those who may never have seen it, Apu was an Indian-born man with a thick accent and negative stereotypic traits he was given in the show. Hurry, would you talk about the impact of this film over the past five years?
0: Yeah, I absolutely can. It's funny, you know, I made this documentary the issue of Apu being a stereotype. You know, that that wasn't new to me. Growing up it was quite obvious like oh this, you know, this character is doing a crude impression of my parents essentially and you know, when I was a kid I didn't mind it because we didn't have anything else and if you're hungry you take crumbs, right? So that's basically you know, what it was. And when you start to realize, oh, this is all we have (laughs) is this one character, you know, that definitely gets old after a while. You know, I did a piece on my old uh, friend W. Kamau Bell's show. Totally biased where I first kind of discussed the idea of Apu. And I remember when I was writing the piece, I wasn't sure if it was all that interesting just because I'm like, yeah, but people have talked about Apu kind of being built on stereotypes for years, right? And, and I remember Kamau telling me, no, your community has talked about that. That's not something mainstream America thinks about, and which was kind of eye-opening. And when that piece was made, which was it was just a short part of a longer piece about. South Asian representation, that part is the part that popped, that people brought up a lot. And so and it became clear that there was more meat on the bone. So I made this documentary to talk about the history of this character, and how, you know, it it fits into this larger uh, history of minstrelsy against marginalized people in this country, you know, I'd start with like, the black community, blackface, things like that. And it kind of falls in line, a weird hazing period that you know, people have to go through with their representation in this country before finally they get seen in some way, ex- they get accepted into the mainstream. And so I make this documentary, you know, I, I, tr- I make it as funny as I can. It's kind of a 101 for me, you know, like it, it wasn't nearly as like, thoughtful or in depth as I'd like it to be, but you know, it was on basic cable. And my thought was this is something that people don't know about. So you got to kind of start from scratch. I didn't think it would make much of a dent considering it was a 45-minute documentary on True TV that was hard to access online at the time. It's now available on HBO Max if people do want to see it. But when it came out in 2017, it was hard to find. And the thing I realized is people don't need to see, read, or really consume a thing to be able to have an opinion on it and criticize it. And what that led to is just the trailer of the film led to people saying things like, why does everything have to be racist? We live in this politically correct society now. poo's racist? How come nobody said anything for 30 years? And it's like, well, nobody asked me because I was seven. You know what I mean? Like, if we, if, There wasn't the ability for us to speak in the public eye as, as as South Asians for quite some time. And so I make this documentary. A lot of people see it. A lot of people don't but it's written about in you know press all over the US and all over the world cuz i discovered how far the the reach is so you have people writing articles about this about this documentary in places where the film is not available you know throughout south america for example i got so many death threats in spanish and eventually Portuguese when I got to Brazil. wait,
1: I thought you were going to say they were cheering.
0: No, 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 no. It was was a lot of, I mean, I still get one or two hate mails a week, and it's been five years. The death threats have pretty much stopped, which is great. The first two years, you know, weren't the best, especially when the film originally came out. I had to have extra security at shows because people were, sending messages to venues and things like that. So
1: oh uh,
0: over a cartoon character. And, you know, I, I think to myself, who taught me how to critique popular culture? Where did I learn to do that? It was The Simpsons. Like I am ba- I used what I was taught. Like, how can you be funny and critical of popular culture? And, th- and that's the first place I really saw it, you know, that in Saturday Night Live. And, you know, it was just funny to see how furious people got the fact that the simpsons responded in any way and in a way that was kind of childish to be perfectly honest it's funny for for a documentary that was made on basic cable that most people didn't watch for that to elicit a reaction from the simpsons tells you a lot about white fragility oh yeah because you know i, I just Let's say I was being a troll, which if I was a troll, I didn't need to make a whole documentary to do it. You know what I mean? They just (laughs) tweeted a few things. But the thing you should never do is feed a troll. So the fact that they responded to me in any official sense or on the show, which they did through Lisa Simpson, critiquing the nature of, you know, trying to revise history or What do you do with art that's problematic like she had a response that kind of threw the nature of that character under the bus
1: well what am i supposed to do it's hard to say
0: something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically
1: incorrect what can you do some things will be dealt with at a later date if at all
0: The fact that I was able to strike a nerve says a lot about White Fragility. Like, wow, you were criticized for the first time ever, really. The show has never really been criticized other than you're not as funny as you used to be, which is not the worst criticism. That's they set a standard that was so high, it's hard for them to top themselves. That's a good problem, though it has been quite some time that it's been on. But that being said, like the fact that it reached them that says a lot you're supposed to be counterculture you're supposed to be edgy and daring the fact that that could bother you as opposed to be a challenge to like ah, you know this character is old it is a bit stereotypical we've done a lot to improve the character but it's still has issues let's see what else we can do to make it interesting to kind of update it for where we're at today like that thought wasn't there and that's fine they can do whatever they want with with a character at the end of the day i don't really care about the character it's about the message of, hey, when all this was being said and all this was being done, we were paying attention. but you didn't care about us because we did not exist to you. We were not a group that whose voice you worried about and thought about and you had your laughs and so now we're having our laughs at your expense. Hmm. Is that okay? And apparently it's not.
1: I found it very disappointing when Matt Gronig, one of the creators, was so dismissive. I right. really was stunned that it could be just, oh, a comment about political correctness. Did Hank Azaria ever apologize to you?
0: Yes. Yes, he did. You know, I've never actually shared that on air, but yeah, he did.
1: Yeah, he had shared it with others. I had hoped he might have contacted you directly. Like,
0: he did. He did. You know, he definitely spoke about it on various podcasts on Colbert, his regret about the impact the character had. And I appreciated that. And then we actually met up for breakfast, maybe a year ago, which I've never actually discussed. But he was very like, you know, like, I feel terrible. I had no idea but the impact I was making that obviously wasn't my attention. I'm so sorry if it had in- negative impacts on your life or any of your friends, which, you know, was more than really needed to be said. I didn't really need an apology. You know, to me, it's, you know, I made a film that discussed a thing and he's a, you know, I get it. He's a, a character actor. He did a voice and kind of got stuck in it after a while. Like, I, I understand. I also understand and appreciate the fact that he's taken accountability because of course you have some accountability. I think the thing that, I you know, I think bothered me maybe a little bit about the apologies and all the the, the things he said after actually critically thinking about um, that character and his role in it was he never mentioned how and why he questioned it. Like it's as if he just came up with these thoughts as opposed to like, you don't think my work has impacted the way you think. You don't think that's the reason you're thinking about this. You didn't just come to the conclusion that this was a bad idea, like somebody had to bring it to you. And, you know, I feel like that's something that happens to a lot of people of color. There's an erasure of their contributions to popular culture, to thought. And it's frustrating because I'm really happy. And, you know, initially was like, this is great. Like, this is what a conversation should do. It should lead to people actually like learning things and, Pushing us forward. And, you know, it seems like a lot of people didn't watch the documentary and and didn't get impacted. They just reacted negatively. And one of the guys I talk about actually watched it and reacted in this way that's thoughtful. And I appreciated that. And I remember my friend W. Kamau Bell said to me, like, okay, but that's all well and good. But you did work and you got death threats and you took the heat. And for someone not to, acknowledge that this happened because you put the work in like people are willing to hate you for it and people are willing to threaten you for it those people give you credit but the people who like it's positively affected or who you know made major changes in their life like Hank Azaria you would think you know i would do i, I was do at least a tip of the cap because i also think that would have meant a lot considering all these people are threatening me if the guy that did the voice said i was right that he's reconsidered, that probably would have been helpful to me. And so, you know, it's a strange thing because part of me doesn't want, it's like, I don't need credit. Part of me wants this. I don't want to say wants it to go away, but, you know, after a while, like who wants to keep being insulted over something you did five years ago that you actually stand behind, you know, but I suppose if you make good art and it makes a ripple and it lasts five years, it's probably good art.
1: Comedian Hari Kondabolu will return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's get back to my conversation with comedian Hurry Kondobolu. He'll perform at Dad's Garage this Wednesday, and here we discuss his multiple podcasts. You mentioned your friend Kamau Bell a couple times. You have a podcast together with him. You also have a podcast with your brother. Yeah, yeah. The Kondabolu brothers, and politically reactive with Kamau Bell. Why did you want to bring that back in 2020 after a three-year hiatus?
0: I mean, we brought it back around the time of the the election. You know, the the original idea of the podcast was a one-year election covering what we thought was going to be, you know, the Hillary Clinton election. Like, you know, it was a historic time. It was a very big transitional time. We wanted to cover stories. And to us, it was like, okay, we let's see how much further we can, you know, shape this progressive movement. What is happening? We've made some incremental progress under Obama. What else we can do? And it seems foolish now. You know, I don't think a lot of us realized what we were actually up against. So we ended up extending it another year to cover the first year of the Trump presidency. And then we brought it back because, hey, like, this is going to be historic, you know, election. Is Trump going to get reelected? And we brought it back and it happened to coincide with the pandemic where both of us actually had a block of time, which is something that, you know, I've realized is hard to guarantee. Like, I would love to bring this podcast back again for this upcoming election, but, you know... Kamau has three kids and is making so many different incredible things, including his amazing documentaries, four part documentary on Bill Cosby, which is available on Showtime, which uh, there was a lot of great documentaries that he was up against for the Emmys. I really thought he was going to win it because the work he does on that four part documentary is just incredible, really thoughtful. And also, you know, selfishly, I would love to have our podcast back because I miss talking to my friend every week. (laughs) <laughs> you know it's hard Your life you know it's not like a decade ago plus before we had kids you know now you know <laughs> things are busier and and harder and success is wonderful it also brings less time to talk to the people that you love all the time and so that was an excuse for us to hang out virtually every week and i miss that terribly in addition to having really good conversations and talking to incredible guests, not just about uh, the issues that were in front of us, but kind of like, what are the long-term impacts of things? Or let's talk about gerrymandering, things that would seem very boring. How do we make those topics interesting? And to know that you know our podcast has been used in college classrooms, for example, to explain concepts is incredible, because that's not why you get into entertainment. You don't expect to be studied. And I feel privileged that that and the documentary and my standup has been on curriculums. You know, that's not how I imagined it going down. Hmm. But I'm grateful.
1: With good reason. In the final episode of Politically Reactive, you and Kamau, listen to me, I'm talking about like he's my friend. (laughs) You and Kamau Bell discuss mistakes you made in this series. And that's so admirable why did you both think it important to finish out the podcast with a my bad episode because i think it's important to be accountable
0: you know especially when you you know are in the the public sphere and you are trying to share people's truths and be honest and if you make a mistake, like, do do you do you just avoid it and pretend it never happened? Or do you own up to it and see if there's growth there? I feel like the PR thing to do in a lot of these situations, and by PR, I don't mean politically reactive, but public relations is, you know, uh, avoid it. Don't say anything. It's very Trumpian, right? If you don't say anything, it moves on, nobody thinks about it. And I, I don't think that's really our style. It's it's more about like, let's be honest and confront it, apologize where there needs to be apologies and, and move forward. I mean, I think that, you know, that's, that's something both of us hang our hats on is being really thoughtful with our art, thinking about the impact it's going to make and hoping that it makes the world better. And if we in any way fail to do that, especially in something like a podcast, because with stand up that's. It's a different kind of thing. It's hard always to fix mistakes. You do the best you can or something is cemented and you can't go back and fix it because it's a stand, it's a joke and it's out there. With a podcast, the ability to make an episode to actually fix things, that's a, you know, that's a gift. And also, you know, I can't hide behind this idea of this is, it's a work of art. It's frozen in time. A podcast is much more of a living thing. And it's a great opportunity to actually, like, you know, practice what you preach. So that's why we did that last episode.
1: Hmm. You and comedian Megan Stalter are hosts of the new Netflix show, Snack versus Chef, a food competition show where 12 chefs go head to head to recreate some of the world's iconic snacks. And invent their own snacks hurry what was your reaction when they asked you to host the show
0: in all honesty who canceled on you (laughs) (laughs) who said they couldn't do it last minute just because you know i am so used to the offers being made to me being very much about politics and race and you know, which is nice, but it gets frustrating because I'm also a good comedian. Like I'm a, a strong writer, I've done this for 20 plus years. Like I know how to do comedy. I know how to be on camera. I know how to read a teleprompter well. Like these are things I've had to develop over the years, and it's like, you know, I have skills that can be used really in any setting of it. I don't think people necessarily have always thought of me as, as a person who can do those things because my material is what it is it has a really strong point of view i think people sometimes forget it has a strong point of view but there's also lots of skill involved in structure and writing and thought that that works in other spheres so when i got this offer i'm like wow this is this is just a fun show there is no greater meaning here it's it's just a fun show to have it's just to have fun and You know, I was thrilled. And I think in my 20s, maybe I would have scoffed at it like, no, that's not what that Lenny Bruce wouldn't do this. You know what I mean? This is (laughs) this is not what George Carlin would have done once he became a politicized being. And it's like, what what am I talking about?
1: Oh, he would have done it when he got the munchies. Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> I take it back, Lois. You're absolutely right. Didn't think about it, but you're absolutely right. Oh,
1: well, you know, th- th- I don't sell yourself short. You probably would have seen the redeeming social value of maybe saying that potato chips are the perfect combination of fat, starch, and salt. Oh, there's
0: definitely a lot of discussion of that. I mean, that's that's one thing that's really fun about this is you can only take yourself so seriously when it's talking about snack food, right? Because that is something that's relatable to everybody. Everybody has their things they enjoy. And it's kind of universal, regardless of whether you're a kid or an adult. There's a mix of nostalgia and, oh my God, I love these things. And it, it really, you know, we made a really fun show. Meg Stalter is an incredible force of nature. If you've seen her mm-hmm. on uh, the show Hacks on HBO Max, yes. which is, she's the, the assistant, the agent's assistant, incredible. And, you know, getting to work with her was so fun because we're so different, yet there was such a nice chemistry. And, you know, I don't think I was exactly the straight man, but I do think more so because, you know, I feel like I'm I'm good with structure and I'm good with jokes. But you, you know, I also know that Meg is someone who needs to be given a bit of free reign, because what she can do with space is unbelievable. With the room to just invent, like she's such an incredible performer. And we had a blast co hosting this, you know, and we had two incredible uh, judges and in Helen Park and Ali Buzari, who are chefs who were able to actually you know break down the science of the stuff we were eating and also how the industry the snack industry works so you know it's a fun show you know it's a family show it's definitely something i would love to do again comes out on netflix on november 30th i hope people watch it it's it's i don't think you're gonna leave it being a different human being but i do think you'll leave it in a good mood and hungry and, this, and hungry yes. absolutely absolutely
1: do you think that the brownie is the perfect food? Oh. I do.
0: I like brownies. They've never been my number one. I'd always, you know, a cookie or a piece of cake has always been my preference. So oh. a brownie, especially a blondie, which I realize might be sacrilegious and maybe hypocritical <laughs> considering my discussion of white chocolate <laughs> earlier, but a blondie is an incredible invention. I, I absolutely love it.
1: Comedian and podcaster, Hurry Condobolo. When we come back, Hurry discusses his recent visit to the White House. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WAVE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, my guest today is comedian Huri Condobolu, who will perform in Atlanta, Dad's Garage, this Wednesday, November 16th. Here, he talks about his time at the recent Diwali celebration at the White House.
0: I mean, first of all, it was 500 people, it was packed in there. And it was it felt uh, it's it's strange when you're part of a community that is relatively small, like 1% of the population, something like that. Because when things like this happen, and you get chosen to go, you basically see every South Asian who's on the top of their field. And the ones who couldn't make it only didn't make it because they had something else going on, or they're so famous. Where oh, another trip to the White House? You know what I mean?
1: <laughs> was the Vice President <laughs> there?
0: Yes, Kamala Harris was there, as was Dr. Jill Biden and and the President. All gave lovely speeches, and you know, after the speeches, you know, there was also like it was kind of beautiful seeing a sitar player play in the East Room and see dancing, like you know. It was, different like south asian styles of dancing you know in the East room and you know i thought there would be more like formal events but after that you know that initial presentation it was like hey here's some booze and food enjoy yourself like it was (laughs) such a it was literally a party like i am having a mango lychee cocktail while staring at a portrait of john f kennedy (sighs) like it is the most bizarre and wonderful thing and You know, my mom doesn't walk as well, perhaps as she used to. And I, you know, I was kind of, I felt bad, like, mom, you didn't get to walk around as much as I hoped. And she's like, just being there was almost enough. Just interacting with the people I interacted with, just seeing what I was seeing in front of me is, was unbelievable because you're seeing the White House filled with 500 plus South Asians, you know, dancing and talking and a lot of us meeting each other for the first time people, you know, Oh, I've heard of you, but we've never met. Like how many spaces will you find so many incredible writers and actors and business people, you know, Vivek Murthy, the surgeon general was there. It's, it's surreal. Like, wow. Like all of us are in this room and we all do very different things, but you know, we're all South Asian and, and we all have, I suppose, succeeded enough where we're people of note in our community. And it was beautiful. It, it really was. It was a thrill. And, and to bring my mom there was uh, I I don't even say it was a dream because a dream means I've thought that that was a possibility. Do you know what I mean? Like I never thought this like was a thing that telling jokes in a basement of a sports bar when I was 23 would bring me. Do you know what I mean? Like that my thought when I was struggling at open mics, and performing in front of eight people wasn't this will bring me to the white house one day and i can bring my mom with me and it, it just to be there was surreal all a lot of this is surreal for me whenever i get invited to something like that i'm like wow i get seen in that light by my peers that is that is beautiful
1: oh and how special for her magical yeah. i'm sure unforgettable
0: oh yeah and i think and she was thrilled to to have pictures. I wish she had gotten a picture with the president. We weren't able to do that, but she got a ton of beautiful shots in the White House and a lot of stories. So, that's it's just wonderful. It's great.
1: And you did it.
0: I feel pretty good about it. It, it I I don't I don't think it makes up for maybe how hard I made life to some degree, choosing an unconventional career. I feel like the baby makes up for that more than anything. Aww. I think giving them a grandchild, I think kind of fixed a lot of that. But I, I don't think it hurts to to bring your mom to the White House. And it's funny, there were a lot of other people that brought their mom too. And I was thinking, are they all kind of in the same thing of like, all right, see, it all paid off. <laughs> me, me being an actor paid off. Me being an activist paid off. Here's the proof. Here's the White House. Yeah. I love it.
1: Many of our listeners know you from your work on the NPR News Quiz Show. Wait, wait, don't tell me. What's special for you about being a panelist on Wait, Wait?
0: Oh, the chemistry with the other panelists. You know, it's not always the same lineup, but sometimes you get lucky and you, you find a group of people that just really gel well. I had a great time. The last show I did this last week, I, it was with uh it was me, Maz Gibrani, and Karen Chi. We were three comics were the panelists, and we had a blast. Like, you know, you, you never know how it's gonna go. At the time before it was me, Dulce Sloan, Tom Papa, also a, an absolute blast. You know, that's great. Peter Sagel is just brilliant. Like he is such a good host, and I learn watching him every week. He's so quick. It, it really is a, a team show. <laughs>
1: All right, Alex, for your next quote, here is one of many
0: enthusiastic reactions to an election that happened this week in Europe.
1: This will end in catastrophe.
0: Yes, that was a foreign minister in Spain talking about the election of the fascist leader, Giorgia Maloney, as prime minister of what country? Italy. Yes, that's right, Italy. Ding. It's-a-me, a a fascism. Georgia Maloney. (laughs) (laughs) The leader of a hard-right party that is a literal descendant of the original fascist party was elected the new prime minister of Italy. But come on, has a a fascist Italian prime minister ever done anything bad?
1: No. They've only ever been
0: helpful. Look at history. Exactly. She prefers to go by (laughs) Mussolini. Listen, this, y'all been asking for equality. There you go. This is what it looks like. It 's weird because like a lot of their, their stance, that political party stance is the idea of like refugees are coming to Italy, right. and they're, you know one thing I read was that refugees are the reason for the crime and prostitution problem in Italy and I don't know if you can, I've seen a few films and I'm not sure if they can really claim that unless they're claiming that what they don't like about this crime is that it's unorganized. Yeah, you know, I was about to say, (laughs) crime in Italy? No one one associates criminals with Italians. What are you talking about? There just isn't a hierarchical structure to this crime. No, I know, I know. You know, there's not much preparation. You hope that you follow the news enough to be able to come up with stuff. But really, it's about being funny on the top of your head. And, you know... The thing that's probably my favorite thing is the is the actual live show because what people get at home obviously is somewhat censored and we have to take certain things out but if you do go to a live taping which i strongly suggest you do at some point there are so many things that are incredibly funny that we cannot put on public radio <laughs> and it is a delight I think the crowd is always surprised because I'm like, oh my God, like that is not going to make the edit. And we will tell the audience that was for you. That will not make the edit. But really, like we have so much fun. It is a blast every time. And, you know, they have this incredible new theater that they're doing the show out of called the Studebaker, which, oh, it's like taping a stand up special every show. So much great energy, wonderful crowd. It's a privilege to be on that stage. So, I feel really fortunate that I'm a regular panelist now.
1: Comedian, podcaster, and wait, wait, don't tell me, panelist, hurry, Condobolo. He's performing at Dad's Garage this Wednesday, November 16th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. we'll hear about the upcoming celebration of indigenous culture, the First Voices Festival. Plus, Zach Harrison, founder of Fresh Harvest, tells us why the Atlanta-based home delivery company focuses on locally sourced food. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights' senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.